Well, a provocative new book is generating a lot of discussion, not only in the church world, but even outside the church as well. The title of the book is The Benedict Option, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. It's written by Rob Dreher, who is the senior editor of the American Conservative magazine. And the premise of the book is that American culture is in such steep moral and spiritual decline that in order for Christianity to survive in the West, it's going to require a strategic withdrawal from many aspects of contemporary life. Dreher compares our time, our situation, to that of the church in the 6th century during the collapse of the Roman Empire when Christians like St. Benedict pulled away from their pagan culture and formed monastic communities all over the empire. And those intentional spiritual communities, Dreher argues, not only preserved the Christian faith during the Dark Ages, but actually enabled the church to be a force for good even in those dark times. In his words, the idea is that serious Christians can no longer live business-as-usual lives in America, that we have to develop creative, communal solutions to help us hold on to our faith and values in a world growing ever more hostile to them. And he goes on to describe how Christians can implement this strategy of strategic withdrawal by distancing ourselves from political and cultural power centers and instead focusing our energy on building strong Christian homes and churches and schools. We have to choose, he says, to make a decisive leap into a truly countercultural way of living Christianity or we will doom our children and our children's children to assimilation. Now, I'll freely confess, when I first heard about the Benedict Option and the premise of it, I was not enthusiastic. Strategic withdrawal sounds like the exact opposite of missional living, which is what we've been preaching and leaning into for a couple of years now here at Grace. How can we be for the world if we're not even in the world? And Jesus says, therefore, go. Wasn't he sending us out into all these places to engage the world missionally? It sounds almost as though Drescher wants us to, to hunker down and save our own skins while the rest of the world can go to you-know-where in a handbasket. So I was not initially enthusiastic. But when I actually read the book and listened to a few talk shows in which he was being interviewed, I began coming around to embrace some of the aspects of the Benedict notion. For one thing, Dreher is very clear that this is not about abandoning our mission to serve and save the world. He would simply say it's a strategy for making sure we're able to actually fulfill that mission. We can't give away what we don't have, he says. So vibrant faith, homes, and church are essential to our mission. And I would also agree with Rob that preserving the faith in our contemporary world is going to require intentional, creative, countercultural ways of living. The culture in which we find ourselves, especially perhaps here in New England, no longer promotes the central tenets and values of the Christian faith. Whether we're talking about belief in God or, or church attendance or telling the truth or sexual purity or sacrificial living, not only are those beliefs and values not promoted in our culture, most of the time they are ridiculed or maligned or even undermined. So 
So it's often been said that Christianity is just one generation away from extinction. And I don't know if that has ever felt truer in my lifetime than it does now. And if there's one thing for sure that Rob Dreher gets right, is that preserving the Christian faith begins at home. It begins in the home. As we continue our series, For the Good of the World, we're going to talk, be talking today about the home and about what it means to be good for our homes and good for our families. Certainly an appropriate topic on a day in which we are dedicating 26 children across all of our campuses today. That's a pretty exciting moment. Now, I read recently, well, maybe I should ask you first. How many of you would say that raising children today is more complicated than it was when you were kids? All right, yeah, that's statistics say about 78% of Americans say it's more complicated today than it was when they were kids. And I would agree with, I would agree with that except for one thing, road trips. There were no built-in TV screens in our minivans <laughs> when we drove our kids across the country. But other than that, I would say it probably is harder. Well, last week we learned that if our life is going to be good for the world, it has to begin in our hearts. And so we said our, our hearts are good for the world when our hearts want what God wants. And so we introduced the faithful practice of daily surrender of intentionally each day, morning, noon, or night, pausing and deliberately inviting, welcoming, yield to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, allowing the Spirit to produce in us the fruit of the Spirit, which is good for the world. But once our hearts are good, now we can begin working our way outward and being good for the world, good for the various venues in which we live out our lives, the circles of life, we might call them. And so the first circle we find ourselves in is the circle of the family. Now, I realize we may not all be living with family members right now. We're probably in all kinds of different living situations. But we all have family members, near or far, and they're a part of our lives. And it certainly seems as though our faith ought to be good for our families so that our families can then be good for the world. So those are the questions we're going to go after today. How can I live? How can my life be good for my family? And how can my family be good for the world? Now, along the way, we're going to introduce another faithful practice that we think can help us live into this particular aspect of our mission. And then towards the end of the message, I'm going to invite Karen to come up and we're going to talk a little bit about ways in which we have tried over the years to raise a family that's good for the world. So let's begin in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses is speaking to the people that he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now these words were spoken by Moses to the people on the threshold of the promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey. A new chapter for the people of Israel, having been brought out of slavery in Egypt and through the wilderness, and now they're ready to begin their new good life, uh, their version of the American dream of the good life. And so this is a land of promise. 
At the same time, it's a land of peril because the land is not empty. There are people already living in that land of Canaan. And they are people who do not worship one God. They worship many gods. And they certainly don't worship the God of Israel. They were, for the most part, a violent and warlike people. They were reckless, careless people in the way that they lived. Practicing child sacrifice as one of the ways of worshiping their gods. And so if the people of Israel weren't intentional about remembering all that God had done for them, if they weren't careful to keep the commands and live in, in God's ways, then they were in danger of losing their faith in this pagan culture, of being swallowed up by this very powerful culture around them, forgetting the God who brought them there and walking away from his ways. And it was a situation that is not unlike the one in which we find ourselves today. A time in which we find our own faith and values increasingly challenging to hold on to and to live out in a culture that does not always promote them. A few years ago, the noted, Christian re noted researcher, Christian Smith, he works out of Notre Dame, released his newest survey of young, young Christians in America. He's been doing this for a while now. So these are 18 to 24-year-olds who describe themselves as Christians. And he found that only 40% of Christian young people say that their beliefs are grounded in the Bible or religious teaching. In other words, these Christian young people are saying their beliefs are grounded in their own thinking and in the opinions of others rather than in the scriptures and the historic Christian faith. So that's a concern on the doctrinal side. But there are also concerns on the lifestyle side, far too many to go into all of them, but one of them was interesting. Smith discovered that 61% of Christian young adults see no problem with materialism or consumerism in American culture. Another 30% say it's really nothing to be too worried about, which means that less than 10% of Christ younger Christians in our country feel as though how we spend our money is an important matter of spiritual concern right now. Suddenly all the talk about Christianity being one generation away from extinction doesn't sound so far-fetched. And so what are we to do? What was Israel to do to make sure that their faith was not lost, that it got faithfully handed off to the next generation so that their children could also enjoy a good and long life in the land God had for them? Moses says, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. You have to be intentional, Moses is saying. We can't just assume that the faith will get passed along. We have to have practices in place that ensure that this faith will get handed down and embraced and lived out. And the most simple and central of all these practices is simply to talk about our faith. To talk about our faith. And notice that this talking, this intentional talking, begins at home, not in the tabernacle, not in the assembly. It's not up to the rabbis. It begins at home, Moses said. 
talking to your children and to your grandchildren. Why is that? Why is it because it begins at the home? Because that's, that's where life begins. That's where life is lived out most of the time. Home is where we learn to build relationships. Home is where person and character are formed. And so it has to happen in the home first, Moses is saying. Now that word impress, it's a very vivid word. It carries the image of a stylus being used to carve letters into a clay tablet in which the clay is still soft and wet but will soon harden and preserve whatever impressions are made there. So the idea is that our daily decisions and behaviors and conversations are making impressions on our children and our grandchildren and our nieces and our nephews and the kids in the neighborhood and the kids who run through the halls of the church. Moses is saying every moment matters, every conversation, every behavior They're watching, they're receiving these impressions. Every day, he says, we have opportunities to impress faith on our children. Uh, Just recently, someone asked me, we were having a conversation with a group of people, and the question was, what's your earliest childhood memory? And the first memory that came to my mind, and perhaps it's one I've shared with you before, I can't quite remember. The one that came to my mind was when I was about three years old, I believe. Our family was living in a rural community in upstate New York. And every day, my mother and I had to walk down this long dirt road to the post office to pick up our mail. And my memory is from one of those walks. What I remember as we walked, we stopped about halfway down the hill. And my mother sat me up on a great big rock. And after we looked around over the trees for a while and listened to the birds, she began singing a song to me. This is my father's world. I arrest me in the thought of rocks and trees and skies and seas. His hand, these wonders wrought. Is it any wonder that I have loved the outdoors for my entire life? Is it any wonder for my entire life I have trusted that heavenly father? An impression was being made on my soul that day, an impression that lasts to this very day on a walk to the post office and a few words spoken and sung. Now, we'll offer a few more practical suggestions uh, in just a few minutes, but I want us to notice here that it's more than just the talk. It's also about our walk when you walk along the road. Remember, when I, when the, whenever the Bible uses the word walk, it's never just talking about putting one foot in front of the other and going from here to there. Walking in the Bible is about living. It's about daily behaviors and decisions and interactions with other people. It's about our lifestyle. It's about our work style. It's about our hanging around the house style. That's what the Bible's talking about when it means walk. And so, Moses is reminding his people, he's reminding us that as parents, as grandparents, as spiritual faith parents to others, our faith has to be real and honest and, and, and practical, something we're living out every day if it's to make this kind of impression on our children. 
My mom didn't stop and sing to me because she was checking it off of her to-do list that day, make an impression on the kid today. It's just because that's what she did as she walked through life. She enjoyed the beauty of the world around her. And she talked and spoke to God every day, not just over a coffee with her morning devotions, but even running errands with a toddler in tow. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. When I observe families where parents seem to be doing a good job of living the Christian faith in relation to their children, it is readily apparent that actual practices vary widely. One thing stands out. These parents seriously, honestly, and joyfully follow the way of Christ themselves. And don't miss those three words, seriously, honestly, joyfully. Seriously. In other words, are we being intentional about growing in our faith? Do our children, the children in our lives, see us pursuing Christ and practicing the Christian life? And are we doing that honestly? Do we ever talk about our doubts and our fears and our failures? Do our children ever hear us apologize or question or struggle? Seriously, honestly, and then joyfully. Are we having fun following Christ? Are our homes and churches fun places that are filled with love and laughter? Because that's how the Lord wants us to live our lives. It's far more important to our kids and to our extended family members that our faith be real and even raw than that we get it right all the time. You don't have to have all the answers. You just have to not be afraid of the questions. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be practicing. And that means we make mistakes sometimes. That's what our kids need to see. So perhaps we can summarize it this way. We are good for our family and our family is good for the world when we authentically walk and talk our faith. So it's about conversation and it's about conduct. Mostly it's about being with them in meaningful ways. And again, this is not just for parents and children. This is for our interactions with all of our extended family members. We're good for our families and our families are good for the world when we walk and talk our faith authentically. Now, before we get to some practical ideas, there's one more point we need to make. As important as our home life is to passing faith on, we cannot do it alone. Remember, as Moses is speaking these words, he's not just speaking to individual household units. He's speaking to the whole gathered faith community we need the whole group. We, we need the community of faith. We need the extended spiritual family. We need the church. He was challenging his people, all the people, to take responsibility for passing faith on to the next generation. As much as your children need to hear you speak into their lives, as much as they need to watch you live, they also need other adults who speak into their lives, who model the way of Christ. And they need peers, friends who are making the journey with them. So we need the church. I'm not sure you're all aware of it, but the curriculum we use for most of our children's ministries and most of our student ministries is, is called the Orange Curriculum. The idea behind Orange 
is that it takes the yellow light of the gospel embodied in the church and the red warmth and love embodied in the home and it puts them together. Reminding us that we need to be orange people, that we need church and home, not only to live out our lives, but to bless our children and be good for the world. And so our commitment as a church is that we want to partner with you in raising the children in your lives in the ways of God. We want to do it together. We only get them for a few hours a week at best. So you have far more time with them than the church ever will. But we have more voices and faces that can also speak into their lives. And so we need to be in this thing together. That's why when we dedicate children, as we're doing today, we exchange vows back and forth. We all accept that responsibility. Now, we've been using this orange curriculum for a while now, but we want to kind of continue to lean into that even more intentionally in the days to come. We want to provide you with resources that can help you in your family life. So right now, today, you can download the Parent Q app. It's produced by the Orange Publishers. It'll come right to your phone. And each week, it offers you insight and ideas for how to walk and talk about these things in the context of your family life. And then next fall, we're looking forward to introducing a new idea, a kind of family experience once a month where parents and children can come together and participate in something that will strengthen them as a family and strengthen us as a spiritual family. So we'll talk more about that in a minute. But just know that we are committed to walking alongside you as we learn to walk and talk the Christian faith together. Now, each week we want to introduce a faithful practice to go along that, to this particular circle of life. Last week it was the practice of daily surrender. This week it's the practice of table talk. Table talk. And what we mean by that simply is having, having conversations about things that matter. Having conversations about things that matter. It doesn't mean that every conversation has to be spiritual or about God. It just means we want to have conversations about important things. It's about meaningful connections. And we call it table talk because these conversations are most likely to happen over a meal, probably dinner. Now, the good news is that they tell us that even in our fast-paced society, most families say they eat together five or six times a week. So that's good news, five or six, more than I thought, actually. The bad news is that the average length of that meal is about 12 minutes. <laughs> so it's down from 90 minutes 50 years ago. So it's a little hard to imagine how much meaningful conversation is happening in 12 minutes. So if it's going to happen over the dinner table, we have to be intentional about it and creative about it. And it won't always be the dinner table, of course. It could be any meal. It could be a snack. It could be a no meal at all. The point of table talk is that there's something, some catalyst, some setting that becomes the venue in which we can have a meaningful conversation. And once those conversations begin to happen, well, now God can do good things in our hearts, in our families' lives, and for the good of the world. So at this point, I'm going to invite Karen to come join me here, and we're going to take a few minutes and share a few of the things that we have tried, some of them we've failed at over the years, as we have tried to raise a family that would be true to their faith and that would be good for the world. Um, now, some of these things we've shared in workshops with some of you along the way, but I don't think we've ever done this on a Sunday with the whole church family. 
Just a little context, we just celebrated our 37th anniversary this past week, so we are excited about that. As someone once joked, that's 36 great years. <laughs> I didn't make good. that joke. <laughs> <laughs> They've all been good. Well, we've raised four children, uh, three of them are married, and uh, six grandchildren, and right now the kids are all scattered, Chicago, Denver, and Florida. Um, so we certainly haven't always gotten right, but we've learned a few things, and so we just thought we'd share some practical ideas about how to raise a family that's good for the world. So let's begin with this idea of table talk, this idea of creating meaningful conversations. Uh, so Karen, you've probably had the strongest hand in helping mm -hmm. that happen, so why don't you just tell us a little bit about how we've tried to do that. Well, table talk usually happens around the dinner table, and I made the discovery as I thought about 20 years of making dinner, that's 7,500 meals. That's just dinner, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen who cook. With four kids, we didn't go out to eat that often back in the day, and people didn't usually invite us over with four kids. <laughs> so most of the time, I was doing most of that cooking. Is it possible to make every one of those 7,500 meals meaningful? No. <laughs> Sometimes it's just average, run-of-the-mill, quick-get-in, quick-get-out kind of meals. Sometimes it's all you can do to get something just on the table. I certainly didn't knock it out of the park every night with creativity. Uh, there were many nights it was hot dogs and macaroni and cheese out of a box. Uh, but at dinner time, at least there was the potential that we could have some meaningful conversation together around the table. And I learned a few tricks along the way that I think were helpful. First, we had a rule in our house. No electronics at the table. Yeah, give it a round of applause. No phones, no laptop, no TV. For the kids and for us. Nothing kills conversation quicker than a phone call or TV, or the texting beeping in their pockets. So for 15 or 20 minutes, we had an electronic-free time just to be together and enjoy dinner together it at least made room for conversation, and that's what we were going for. And what kind of conversation? Well, we had to learn how to ask the right questions. You ask a teenager how was their day, was it good or bad, they'll just say nothing, which was our experience with some of our kids, or one-word answers, good, bad, depending on their mood that day. So we began to think of ways we could ask better questions. What was one good thing that happened today? What was the worst thing that happened today? Just to give them practice to learn how to extend the conversation a little bit. Brian and I talking in front of them about our day, me talking, Brian listening, asking questions, gave them a model of what it could look like to actually have a meaningful conversation. Families need practice having conversations. Little children don't know how to do that. They need to see it and they need to practice it. And 7,500 dinners are a really good opportunity to do that. Another thing I learned from many years of teaching school is that kids are happier and feel more secure when they know what's coming. And believe it or not, having rhythms and routines about what they eat helps them to relax and enjoy the time better. So something as simple as me planning meals for the week and sticking it up on the refrigerator um, helped make life easier for me because I wasn't scrambling for a last-minute dinner idea and I could show up at the table being a little happier and a little more open to conversation. And as the kids got older and they could read those menus on the refrigerator, it made them happier if they knew the tacos was coming on Tuesday or I was making chicken parmesan on Saturday. 
When kids are happy, they'll talk more. And if they like the food, they're happier. <laughs> we also had food rhythms to our week. We had pancakes every Saturday morning for 20 years. We had bagels after church every Sunday for 20 years. I still get pancakes every, morning, every Saturday morning, and Brian makes them, which makes me very, very happy. <laughs> so those routines became cues for our kids that they could be nice times to talk. We're going to have pancakes, and we're going to sit at the table a little bit longer. We're going to have bagels after church on Sunday, and we're going to ask you what happened in Sunday school. So those became cues that they knew that a conversation was going to happen. I heard a preacher say once, ruts of routine become grooves of grace. 7,500 dinners can seem like a rut. But when it becomes a platform for meaningful conversation, it can become a groove of grace that really does bless our kids. And just to follow up a little bit on the idea of asking questions, there really is an art to asking questions, and the how was school or how was church is a bad way to ask that question. I found it was always easier to make a very specific ask. Who did you sit with at lunch today? What did you talk about in science? Did you go outside today? What was the topic of the Sunday school class today? What did the preacher say? <laughs> Questions like that. Um, the more specific you can be, the more concrete the answer. It's an easier answer. It kind of gets the conversation going again. And it's important to remember that if kids are going to talk, they need to feel respected and listened to, which means we don't always correct them. We don't always have to have the last word. They can be the expert. They can have an opinion that's different than ours. And when we allow them in small things to have their own opinion, they're willing to listen to us on the big issues as well as, as we communicate respect to them. Um, we tried some things around the dinner table that did not work well or worked for a while. For a while, we tried Bible memory. We did a verse every week, uh, working our way through the alphabet, A, B, C, finding a, a verse that begins with A and B. I forget how we, far we got H or K or something like that. We didn't make it all the way through, but hey, they got 12 or 13 <laughs> verses that we memorized. We were always inspired by pastors who said they sat and read C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia to their children around the dinner table. That was a disaster for us. It never worked. We didn't get through one book. So there are times you just need to kind of give it up and try something else. So we mentioned a little bit about the routines, and routines are great for conversation. They give you predictable times where a meaningful conversation can happen. But there's nothing like a celebration to spice things up. And in our family, we tried to celebrate everything. Um, birthdays were always a big deal in our house. You got your favorite dinner, you got your, some presents, you got to choose the cake just because it was your birthday and uh, you were special. And we had uh, celebrated holidays like many of you do. Um, and often it was around food that made those things important. So for us, Christmas Day is always roast pork and latkes. And barbecue and fireworks on the 4th of July, corned beef and cabbage on St. Patrick's Day. And I'm sure many of you have your own celebrations and own uh, special foods. Those times can be so meaningful because they're predictable, because they're repeatable, and you can spend time together. But why make that just a few times a year? It doesn't take much to turn an average dinner into something special. Sit in the dining room, light a few candles, use the good china. Takeout food on china still looks good, and you can have time to talk. We celebrated everything. Daniel just finished a big social studies project. Let's celebrate. Kelly had a great soccer game. Let's sit in the dining room. 
Brendan just took the SATs or Mark got into the first college of his choice, we had a celebration. Just a nice time to be together as a family. Celebrate everything you can and you'll see the conversations flow. One of the celebration routines in our house was always to celebrate the last day of school. Now, I'm an elementary school teacher. I can't wait for the last day of school. <laughs> we all knew on that last day that we would all gather together outside. I always made fajitas, and we always just sat around and talked about the highlights and the lowlights of the year. Everybody got a chance to talk, and it was your turn to talk. Everybody else got to listen. And we kept a journal that we would write in all the different things that the kids said, and it's been a hoot to go back over the years and look at some of the things. We would do that at the end of the summer, too, kind of reflecting on vacations we were on or family members we'd seen. And as the kids got older, that became a real important spiritual time for us to ask them about prayer requests, what things they were thinking about or worried about in the year to come. And they were just great times to bless um, our kids in that way, and we do it every year. But one of the very best celebrations that we ever came up with, and I actually got this from my sister, was called the Balloon Celebration. It was for high school graduation. We would have the whole family together, and everybody, aunts, uncles, grandparents, cousins, would all get a balloon. And one by one, they would walk up to the graduate and say something they appreciated or remembered about that um, particular graduate. Was it awkward sometimes? Yes. Did it get silly and weepy sometimes? Yes. But it was worth it for our kids to get in the habit of saying nice things to and about the people they loved. And so with 12 cousins, that was a lot of affirmation, and it was really a great thing for our family. Mm -hmm. So a lot, part of what we were doing there is trying to teach our children the, the discipline of reflection. Not just living your life, but thinking about your life, about your day, what's happening, what God might be saying to you. Now, it doesn't always happen over meals. As we said, the idea of table talk is that there's some kind of catalyst for a conversation. And I found that often with the kids, doing something else made it easier to talk. So it was shooting baskets or playing catch out in the yard. Um, I used to like to take uh, Kelly shopping. I don't mind shopping. And uh, Karen's not crazy about shopping, so I took Kelly shopping. We had some of the best times being out together, shopping for clothes for her and things like that. The idea is you're finding other things to do that uh, enable you to have a meaningful conversation. Uh, one thing, principle I've often shared is that if you want your children to talk to you when they're 14, you need to listen to them when they're four. Have you listened to a four-year-old? It will drive you crazy. But if you listen to them when they're four, they may well talk to you when they're 14. So you begin early to build in this practice of conversation. So we find ourselves in kind of a new stage right now. You want to talk about this yeah. empty nest stage? As most of you know, we have four children, and they all are grown and out of the house. They all live in other states, and they're all a plane ride away. Uh, and we do the usual things to keep in touch. We text, and we call, and we follow each other on Instagram, and we FaceTime. We split lots of airfares, and we try to see them as much as we can. But in many ways, we cannot speak into their lives the way we did when they were little. They just don't live here, and they've gotten older. On a vacation a number of years ago in Colorado on a sunlit afternoon, I asked our kids, who at that point were um, college and above, you know, what Brian and I could do to communicate that we respected them, that we loved them. Like, what would be meaningful to them? And each one of them said, 
don't give us any advice. We want to figure it out on our own. Ouch! <laughs> but we have so much good advice. You know? <laughs> the truth is they were right, and it was a good reminder. They're young adults, they're living on their own, and they have a right to figure out their own lives the way Brian and I had a chance to figure out our own lives. So our role has changed. It's no longer to guide and to tell, it's to support and to listen. And that's what we try to do. In a few weeks, our kids will all be back in Boston for the 4th of July. The whole family will be together, all grandkids as well. And we'll have a big picnic, and we'll go to the fireworks, and they're going to ask me to make fajitas and chicken parmesan, which I will do. And all those things will make room for some meaningful conversations. In some ways, we'll be right where we were 20 years ago, planning, <clears throat> sorry, planning meals and planning celebrations, asking questions, doing a lot of listening, just so our kids will talk. And we can't wait to hear what they have to say. And one thing we... The one thing we haven't had too much time to talk about is our partnership with the church. As important as all these things are that we describe doing at home, we could never have done this without our church families. Two wonderful churches that loved our children, that prayed for us. Many of you, even listening now here today, have invested in the lives of our kids as teachers and mentors and small group leaders. You've prayed for them. You've given to their mission trips. You've done all kinds of things uh, along the way. They know they are deeply, deeply loved by a broader church spiritual family. Uh, our Camp of the Woods gang, a group of families that we kind of connected with at camp over the years, they are now like aunts and uncles and cousins to, to our children spiritually. So simply would encourage you to take advantage of your partnership with the church. I hope you're sensing from this conversation, we are deeply grateful for the family life that God granted to us, for the things that our kids are doing, for the decisions they've made, um, and we're grateful for those who helped us all to get there, including all of you. Uh, we do know, as you all know, there are no guarantees. You can sometimes feel like you're doing all the right things, but every child has to make their own decision. And they make it in their own time and in their own ways. And sometimes they need to figure it out on their own, and sometimes they need to go off away for a while. My experience has been most of the time when children are raised in an authentically Christian home and church, they almost always find their way back there eventually. Now, sometimes they don't even want to talk about it anymore. And all you can do is love them, pray them, pray for them, be with them, and talk about other important things and wait for the moment when spiritual things come up again. Uh, one of our sons is a youth pastor now out uh, in Chicago, and recently he was preaching to his congregation. And he told them a story about a meaningful moment in his spiritual journey. It happened when he was about eight or nine years old at father-son camp in the Adirondacks. He and I both woke up early one morning in our cabin. Some of the other fathers were snoring quite vigorously, and we just couldn't sleep. So we decided to go for a walk early morning and found our way down to the waterfront. It was early, and the sun was just rising over that misty mountain lake. So I suggested we go for a canoe ride. So we quietly climbed in the canoe and paddled through the lily pads out to the center of the, of the lake. And then we just stopped and we sat in the still water. And we looked at the trees and we listened to the birds. And I decided to sing a song. <laughs> and you know what I sang. This is my father's world. The birds their carols raise. 
The morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. Mark says that was the moment that God became real to him personally. Now, I had no idea. I thought we were just escaping some snoring fathers. <laughs> but in the context of a walk and a talk and a moment and a song, faith was passed on. You see, a tune and a tooth, truth, had been impressed on my soul many, many years earlier. And now it was the most natural thing in the world to impress that tune and that truth on another young soul, knowing that someday he would do the same for his children and my grandchildren. And Lord willing, in the providence of God, that's how it works when we authentically walk and talk our Christian faith at home. Let's pray. Father, we offer you our lives and our homes today, recognizing that we are all at very, very different places in our journey. Some of us are celebrating and grateful. Others of us are struggling and anxious. But Lord, we're grateful that you, you are with us that you have ordained the home to be a place in which you will make yourself known and in which you will draw people to yourself and you will make our homes places of mission and ministry to those around us. So that's our prayer, Lord. We pray your blessing on those who dedicated children today. We pray your blessing on every household represented across our campuses today. Pray, Lord, that we might live and speak in ways that are true to you, that are a blessing to our children, and that are good for the world. In Jesus' name. Amen.